0: From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen.
1: She took the name of Sojourner because she knew that she had to be an itinerant preacher. And then shortly after that, someone asked her, well, if your name is Sojourner, what's your last name? She realized she needed another name. So she said she prayed about it and God gave her the name Truth.
0: Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash radio. That's patreo dot notseenradio slash not seen radio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Nancy Kester. She holds a Ph.D. in church history and has taught at both the college and seminary levels. She's ordained in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, and her work focuses on 19th century American history, especially the anti-slavery movement, the Civil War, and Reconstruction. She's been inspired through her career by women of that era who, though lacking basic rights, found ways to move the nation closer to its own ideals. In 2013, Kester published Harriet Beecher Stowe, A Spiritual Life, which won the Minnesota Book Award in 2015 in general nonfiction. Today we're talking about her recent book, We Will Be Free, The Life and Faith of Sojourner Truth. Nancy Kester, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you. It's great to be here. So I want to start our conversation in a little bit of an odd place. I'm going to take us to August 22nd. 1852 to a Quaker meeting house in Pennsylvania a meeting of the progressive friends and that famous abolitionist Frederick Douglass is holding forth with his oratory and in the midst of his oratory he is trying to convince the crowd that there is no more to be accomplished by moral persuasion and now people need to take up arms in the cause of anti-slavery and he pauses for a moment for dramatic effect and In that silence, suddenly a voice calls out from the crowd, is God gone? I would love if you could take us to that moment and help us to understand what was happening there and who it was that spoke from that crowd.
1: That voice belonged to Sojourner Truth. And that moment went down in abolitionist history as the great interruption and it was something that became legendary among the abolitionists and was written up in, in many forms in the abolitionist press and told by word of mouth and just became part of the lore of that movement. And it was a very dramatic moment because you have the two most prominent Black abolitionists, Frederick Douglass and Sojourner Truth, and they are disagreeing with each other on how it is that slavery should come to an end. And this story has roots both in the prior relationship of Truth and Douglas, and in Truth's allegiance to the abolitionist doctrines, as they called it, of William Lloyd Garrison. And to unpack that moment, you got to get to those those two roots of it. One is Truth's relationship with Frederick Douglass. She first met him at an abolitionist commune in Northampton, Massachusetts, where she lived for three years and Frederick Douglass came as a, an occasional speaker. And from the get-go, they just were like oil and water. They represented two very different ways of being and of living in the abolitionist movement. And I think this is very important because it shows that among black people as well as white people, Abolitionists had very different ideas of how was the best way to get rid of slavery. Some were nonviolent. Some advocated violence in certain circumstances. Some thought that politics was tainted and unworthy and should be abstained from. And others thought we need to get into politics and use it. And they came down on different sides of these issues. But they also, Truth and Douglas also had very different personalities. I like to use the picture of playing a violin or a fiddle, that Douglas was more of a classical musician, or to drop the metaphor, a classical speaker. He was self taught, but very rigorously taught in literature and rhetoric. And he became one of the master orators of his day. Whereas Sojourner Truth was more of a fiddle player. She was an improviser. She used, if I can say this, a folk style. She didn't write things down beforehand. She was much more off the cuff and spontaneous. And they were just at odds. They operated in such different ways. They respected each other, but they also sometimes rubbed each other wrong. And we know this from things that Frederick Douglass himself wrote in his memoirs and later on. It's clear that he respected Sojourner Truth, but he found it very annoying that she would interrupt him in the middle of a speech like she did this time. So that relationship, I think it helps to think of them as frenemies. But the other piece is that Sojourner Truth was very loyal to William Lloyd Garrison, and she believed in his doctrines of abolition. And, for example, immediate abolition with no recompense to the slaveholder. She believed that complete equality was called for, that merely getting rid of slavery was not enough. Well, Frederick Douglass believed those things, too. And he, too, was taught by William Lloyd Garrison But he began to depart from Garrison's point of view. For example, Frederick Douglass believed that we need to use politics. Even though politics is corrupt, it's a powerful instrument to use for abolition. Whereas Garrison thought that we should stay away from politics because it was hopelessly tainted and corrupt. So they had many differences, but another one was that William Lloyd Garrison believed that moral suasion was the only way that slavery could end. And at first, Douglass believed that, but he began to have second thoughts and see that there was a real need or could be a real need for African-Americans and white abolitionists to use violence to end slavery. And so when he was talking about that in this speech, truth to her ears, that sounded like heresy. And so when she asked Frederick, is God gone, that we have to use violence? And she was implying that he didn't believe in God, which of course wasn't true. But I hope, you know, that gives some of the context to that disagreement. And I think it's really important to note that in the end, Douglas was right. It did take a war and it did take politics, especially the election of Lincoln, to put the United States on a path to getting rid of slavery. So in that one question that she asked, Frederick, is God gone? There's a whole lot of stuff riding on that.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Nancy Kester. We're talking about her recent book, We Will Be Free, The Life and Faith of Sojourner Truth. Well, Dr. Kester, I want to stay with that moment for just a second and see what we can learn about Sojourner Truth in this particular exchange. So there, as she's speaking— And I recognize that we can't know this for sure, but was she angling for a calculated rhetorical effect or had the spirit grabbed her in that moment as it had grabbed her at times before and put the words in her mouth? How would you characterize your imagination of what was going through Sojourner Truth's mind at that particular moment?
1: Well, of course, I don't know the answer to that, but it is an intriguing question. And I like to think that she was moved by the Spirit, as she often was. But I also think that the Spirit might have moved her to ask a question that would have an expected answer. Because you say, if you say, Is God gone? the answer must be, Well, no, God's right here. So her question was posed in such a way that the audience would be with her and not with Frederick, or so she, she may have thought. But one thing it tells us about it, us is that she was a very bold person. She was used to standing up and being the only one to say something. And it seemed to me sometimes that she really thrived on that.
0: Well, and if we take this idea, this question, is God gone, and the answer, of course, God is not gone, God must be here, then Sojourner Truth had a theology that followed from that. If God is here, then violence is unnecessary. Now, these are my words, not yours. So have I got that right, or would you say it in a different way? No, I think that's
1: absolutely what she believed. And we know that because there were other speeches that she gave in which she talked about being nonviolent and she talked about the power of moral suasion and of God to move in history and through people, but without using violence. So we know that this isn't the only time, this particular interruption was not the only time that she voiced those convictions.
0: And there are other points in your book, We Will Be Free, where we get examples of Sojourner Truth doing exactly this, being surrounded by a mob in the dead of night, and literally singing and preaching her way out of that situation. So I wonder if you could briefly tell us about how Sojourner Truth saw the Word of God or the words that God gave her as a kind of powerful balm against violence.
1: Well, she used the words of Scripture, and by the way, I should say that she did not read or write, but she learned Scripture by having it read to her and by listening to many sermons. But she believed that Scripture was powerful, almost that that verses from Scripture were almost like arrows that you could shoot and they would pierce the heart and change people's motivations and change their minds. She believed that so thoroughly that I think that gave her a power when she spoke that people had to listen to her. And I think people sensed that she had, I'm going to use the word charismatic, but in the broadest sense of that word, I think she did have some charismatic power that other people noticed. And whether they liked it or not, they had to admit that she had something that most people didn't have. And another aspect of that was her singing. She had a powerful singing voice, and it was said to be a very low alto or even a tenor voice, which reminds me of some other activists like Fannie Lou Hamer and Odetta, who had these wonderful, deep singing voices. So that when they stood up to sing, they commanded attention through the majesty of the voice, the singing voice that they used. And I think that she used those two spiritual gifts, both her convictions of the power of Scripture and her singing voice that naturally commanded attention from people. I think sometimes to the extent that if they recognized some greater power, they became afraid and either just went away or ceased from troubling. Now, of course, that didn't always work. There were examples of times where she and the other abolitionists she was with were just plain mobbed and had to run for it. But there were other times when she was able to stand up to the an angry crowd and turn them around.
0: Now, as we're moving towards our first break, I'm aware that you mentioned that Sojourner Truth could not read or write, but she is speaking and preaching, was she reared in a particular tradition or was she drawing from numerous traditions as she formed this theology of hers?
1: I think she was drawing from numerous traditions because judging by her narrative, she received almost no religious training as a child or as a very young woman. If she did, it's not included in the narrative, and we just can't know about that. But we do know that shortly after she became free, she went to Methodist camp meetings. She had a vision after she became a free woman of Jesus appearing to her as an intense and yet loving light. And she became profoundly aware of God's love for her. And after that, she did hear a lot of preaching. She went to small group meetings and she went to big church meetings. And I think she learned from those how to hold forth. And also she learned by trial and error. She started out small, just preaching in houses uh, to people that had asked her to come and do some housework because that's how she supported herself. So she learned by trial and error and gradually was able to get the experience to preach to large
0: crowds. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Nancy Kester. She holds a Ph.D. in church history and has taught both at the college and seminary levels. She's ordained in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Today we're talking about her recent book, We Will Be Free, The Life and Faith of Sojourner Truth. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Nancy Kester. She holds a PhD in church history and has taught at both the college and seminary levels. She is ordained in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, and her work focuses on 19th century American history— especially the anti-slavery movement. Today we're talking about her recent book, We Will Be Free, The Life and Faith of Sojourner Truth. We began our conversation in the first segment at this crystalline moment between Sojourner Truth and Frederick Douglass, what you have told us has been characterized as the Great Interruption, and that happened in 1852. I wonder about how old was Sojourner Truth when this interaction, this Great Interruption, occurred?
1: Well, let's see. She was born, historians think, in 1797. We don't know her birth date for sure. So she would have been,
0: let's see, about 56 years old, 55, 6, somewhere in there. And so she had already a very full life up to this point, and let's get some of the highlights. We won't be able to get all of it. You go into thorough detail in your book, We Will Be Free, but she was born into slavery. Is that correct? Yes, she was born into slavery in New York, in the Hudson
1: River Valley, not far from the what we know as the town of New Paltz in Ulster County. And that was a Dutch-speaking area, largely Dutch-speaking, so her first language was Dutch. And that's interesting because after she became famous as a public speaker, many people, reporters would mention her odd form of speech. And historians think that they were talking about her Dutch accent, which she carried through life, although she also was very fluent in English. So she spent the first 30 years of her life enslaved, and she freed herself about a year before New York officially ended slavery. And she needed to free herself because she had a falling out with the person who owned her, legally owned her, and that's another long story. But she freed herself, took refuge with an abolitionist family, and then she found that that her son, Peter, had been illegally sold into slavery, trafficked into slavery in Alabama. She got help from some abolitionist lawyers and went to court and got her son back, which took many months of patient, perseverant, hard work, and waiting to do. She got her son back. Not too long after that, she went to New York City and worked as a maid for two or three wealthy methodist businessmen and on the side she did preaching and she had a ministry to prostitutes that she joined in with some of her employers who were part of a Magdalene ministry which was to convert prostitutes and set them on a path of righteous living so she had quite an interesting life but She became very disenchanted with churches that either agreed with slavery or tried to ignore it. And she became involved with perfectionist groups that took her further and further out to what might be called fringe movements and ended up in in kind of a personality cult with a really strange guy that called himself the Prophet Matthias. She was in that for several years until the whole thing fell apart under some dramatic charges of murder directed against the cult leader. That was just a really strange episode in her life. I think she learned some things from that. After that, she stayed in New York City and continued working as a maid for a while or housekeeper, if you prefer. But then she became very frustrated because she realized that she was not following the calling that she got when she had her vision back now many years ago. And she realized that she could not follow her calling as long as she was worried about trying to support herself. She realized that she would have to cut loose from all worries about money, that she was always poor. She'd have to cut loose from that and go out as an itinerant preacher and hope that, trust that, I should say, God would take care of her needs. Which she did. She became an itinerant preacher on Long Island and then went to New England. And by then she was in her early 40s. And she started to get tired after many months and looked for a place where she could stay a while. And friends directed her to this abolitionist commune in Northampton. I like to think of that as her college education. You know, she never went to college. She was deprived of an education because of slavery. But yet she had an experience there that was kind of like college because she lived in a communal setting. She heard a lot of lectures about slavery and other reforms. And to stretch the analogy even further, she even had a campus job, which was running the laundry. But she also could go out and do public speaking, which became her internship that launched her
0: into her career as a reform speaker as well as a preacher. Well, this is fantastic. And one of the things that I want to impress upon our listeners today is your book, We Will Be Free, doesn't just give us the scope of life of sojourner truth, but it also gives us a glimpse into a number of religious movements that are happening in the 19th century. The Shakers, the Quakers, the Free Methodists, the sort of fruits of the Great Awakening, and as you mentioned, also these charismatic little enclaves that gather around certain individuals, sometimes for great benefit and sometimes for uh, nefarious ends. But I was fascinated to learn about the way in which Sojourner Truth intersected with all of these movements that I had learned about in Church history. I wonder if you could say a little bit about that. She really is a through line through all of these. She
1: is, and she became influenced by the Millerite movement too. She was an Adventist all of her life, although that word, like so many others, can mean many different things. But historians believe that she probably was a Millerite Adventist at first, then she modified her views later on. But one of the reasons why she intersected with those groups that you mentioned was that those were groups that allowed women to preach. Not saying that every single part of those groups did, but saying that within those groups there were enclaves where women were allowed and encouraged to preach. And she felt called to preach, so she had to go And be with groups that could not only accept her, but rejoice in her power as a preacher. So her calling brought her in that direction. And I think that these groups also appealed to her because they were outsiders to the mainstream Protestant groups. They all had things to protest about those groups and were trying to. Become purer, more righteous, more spirit filled examples of the kinds of communities that Jesus calls us to live in. So, those were some of the reasons why she
0: intersected with those groups. <laughs> If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dahl. We're speaking today with Nancy Kester. We're talking about her recent book, We Will Be Free, The Life and Faith of Sojourner Truth. Well, I'm struck by, and I want to linger for a moment with these various movements in the 19th century in sort of post-Great Awakening America, because— A common denominator amongst a lot of them is they weren't necessarily, and I'm grasping for the word here, they weren't liturgical. They were charismatic. They were willing to be led by the Spirit. Now, this is my terminology, not yours. Is that accurate, or would you say it in a different way?
1: No, I would say that's accurate. They were not liturgical churches, but they often had certain components that would be part of their worship. For example, there would be preaching, there would be praying. There would be singing. Sometimes there would be waiting, simply waiting for the spirit. So all of those components were there, and there would often be someone who was at least unofficially in charge. So it wasn't completely random, but it was porous enough for the spirit to be able to move. And I think that really appealed to her, having that sense of freedom and having that sense of not being encumbered by all kinds of forms and assumptions. And that may affect, or it may relate to how so many Black people worshipped as well. Not all, of course, there were Black Episcopalians, there were Black Catholics, there were Black Lutherans. So I'm not trying to make a blanket statement here. But that African-American religion intercepted with those movements also because of longing for freedom and the longing for free expression, which was so cruelly suppressed under slavery and under Jim Crow. And so I think all of those things came together in the life of Sojourner Truth. And she embodied those things. And I think it's really interesting that even though she Intersected with those groups. She was influenced by the Quakers. She contemplated joining the Shakers. She loved Methodist camp meetings, and you could go on and on. And yet, after she was part of this weird kingdom of Matthias, she never joined a group again officially, a religious group. She always positioned herself as a prophetic person or as a sister who would come from outside and visit or sojourn for a while and then go somewhere else. She reminds me of Noah's dove that was sent out from the ark and would fly over the waters and look for some place to land, but she didn't find it. After that Northampton Institute, the abolitionist commune, she never again
0: really found a place where she could be at home. And maybe we should take a moment and clarify for our listeners her name, Sojourner Truth, because that was not her birth name. That was a name that she either chose or was given to her, depending on how you set the needle on this particular charismatic journey that she was on. But I wonder if you could talk to us about her birth identity and how she became Sojourner Truth. I recognize we won't be able to go into detail, but just in broad strokes—
1: Well, her birth identity was that her name was Isabella. That's the name her parents gave her. And her last name would have changed whenever she changed owners. She would have taken on the last name of the owner. So today, in our time, many people give her the name of Isabella Baumfree, which was her father's name. And that is an attempt to to show respect to her true lineage. And I think that's a good thing, and I understand that. But historically speaking, she would not have been called Isabella Baumfree. It's fine for us to know her as that. But she was longest known as Isabella von Wagenen, because that was the name of the abolitionists that harbored her when she freed herself and when her former master came looking for her they stood behind her and made it possible for her to stay free. So she was known as Isabella von Wagenen. Then after many years under that name and doing the housekeeping and trying in vain to really fulfill her calling to preach, she took the name of Sojourner because she knew that she had to be an itinerant preacher, a preacher with no home someone who traveled. And then shortly after that, as she said in her narrative, someone asked her, well, if your name is Sojourner, what's your last name? She realized she needed another name, so she said she prayed about it, and God gave her the name Truth. She said she was called Sojourner Truth because she was going to sojourn and travel, and she was going to speak the truth about sin and about Jesus, and about slavery. So that's how she got
0: her name. One of the things that you say in your book, We Will Be Free, that really struck me was Sojourner Truth also saying that because her name was Truth, she could never be enslaved again. And I wonder if you could tell my listeners that thought process.
1: Yes. And that was the thing that she said later in her life. I think it was in a speech that she gave shortly after the Civil War, that slavery cannot be where there is truth. And I think what she meant by that is that slavery is built on lies. It's built on the lie that white people are superior to blacks. It's built on the lie that human beings can own other people. and. These are such big lies, but that's what slavery was built on. And so, to her, the truth was that God made us all equal. Everyone's a child of God and nobody owns anybody else, but we all are accountable to God. That was the truth. And the other stuff was a lie. So, I think her thought that truth and lies cannot exist together. Eventually, one will drive the other out. It reminds me of what Lincoln said about a house divided against itself cannot stand. It will either be all one thing or all the other. And Sojourner Truth had a similar
0: idea. Well, what's also struck me about Sojourner Truth in her speeches about slavery and against slavery for abolition, she was very concerned with the souls of the slave owners, and I wonder if you could also talk to us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, she mentioned that in several speeches, especially during the the 1850s when she first got into becoming a traveling lecturer. And in several places, we have evidence from abolitionist newspapers that wrote about her speeches, that she would talk about, God pity the poor slaveholder. And I think what she meant by that is that slavery is a terrible thing for the black people. It is also a terrible thing for the white people because it ruins them. It taints them. It corrupts them. That's the word I want. It corrupts them so that they become just a a cracked or shattered image of what God intended them to be. We cannot reflect the image of God if we are enslaving other people. So that was one aspect of it. But another one was that to her, that punishment in hell was very real and that if slavery was a sin or enslaving people was a sin that you could be punished for in all eternity. She didn't want that for anyone. She wanted people to be forgiven and to reflect the image of God and to spend eternity with God in heaven and not to spend eternity in hell. Now, later on in her life, her idea of hell is modified So I don't want to give the impression that she always felt that way. She came to believe that God was not into punishing people, but that God was a God of mercy. But back in the day when she was saying, making these speeches and talking about how she feared for the slaveholder, my understanding is that she still at that time was working with a rather traditional 19th century view of hell. The thing that really strikes me about this is whether you believe in hell or not, she wanted everyone to find their full humanity, to put it in a positive way. That's what she wanted. And she didn't want anyone to be cut off from God or from their own identity as children of God. And she thought that slavery did that to people.
0: It did it to white people. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Nancy Kester. She holds a PhD in church history, and she's ordained in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Her work focuses on 19th century American history, especially the anti-slavery movement. Today we're speaking about her recent book, We Will Be Free, The Life and Faith of Sojourner Truth. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Nancy Kester. She holds a PhD in church history, and she is ordained in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Her work focuses on 19th century American history, especially the anti-slavery movement, the Civil War, and Reconstruction. Today we're talking about her recent book, We Will Be Free, The Life and Faith of Sojourner Truth. Well, we have only been skimming the surface of the amazing life of Sojourner Truth. We've talked a little bit about her abolition work in anti-slavery and how she really is a through line that stretches across the 19th century and gives us a glimpse of these various religious movements that were arising in America in the wake of the Great Awakening. But what amazed me is that her life doesn't stop there, but instead we see her Again, a through line through the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution. And she becomes a very important figure in the women's suffragist movement, which b- brings her to what we might call a kind of intersectionality, where she's working with white women to try and bring about the vote for all women. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that part of her life and her work. Sure.
1: Well, she started as a speaker in the women's movement before the civil war and gave a number of speeches at important women's rights events. And one of the reasons that she got into that, of course, was that women's rights overlapped with abolition. And there were people in the women's movement who heard Sojourner Truth speak at abolitionist rallies and then said, wow, she is really a powerful speaker. And they invited her to come and speak to women's rights gatherings. And one of the interesting things about this is that was a time when women were not supposed to speak in public. And there were very few women who had the opportunity to cultivate the ability to do that. But Sojourner Truth was exceptional because she had already been preaching to crowds for a long time. And so she came ready to go She knew how to address a crowd. She knew how to carry her voice. She knew how to engage people. And I think that is very interesting because it's so easy to think of all of the ways in which she was disadvantaged. For example, she couldn't read or write, she was poor and so on, but she had a big advantage over the majority of white women who had no idea how to get up in front of a crowd and speak. Well, of course, the women's rights movement was temporarily put on hold during uh, the Civil War. Women were very active in the Civil War, but I think there was an agreement that we're not going to pick up the women's rights movement per se until the war is over. Well, then Sojourner Truth was involved in getting the women's rights movement back up again, and she was really stretched because her first commitment, and she said so, her first commitment was to her people. And in trying to help the freed people prepare themselves for freedom and move away from the South and find jobs and hopefully get land. So that was her first commitment, but she was asked by people like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony to come and speak for women's rights groups as well. And when she did so, she said always that she thought it was very important for Black women to get the vote. That is not at all an obvious thing to say. Because back then, and even today, there are people who don't want Black women to be involved in women's rights. There's a long history to that. But Sojourner Truth always insisted on saying that these things cannot be separated. And in some speeches that she gave to women's rights groups, she said that if anything, black women should get the vote first because they needed it the most. Because of all the exploitation that they had endured, they needed to have that political voice. But as the women's rights movement went through a schism over the question of who should get the right to vote first. Should it be black men or should it be all women or should it be white women? And this gets to be a very complicated story, but it was a tragic story because all of those movements should have been together. And there were people that wanted to keep them together. But politically, the polarization was such that they were driven apart. And we are now living in a time of political polarization, and there are those of us who think that, why can't I have some nuance here? Why can't I say both and instead of either or? But it's hard to do when when the right and the left is so driven apart that it seems like there's no middle ground. And that's analogous to what they went through in the, the women's rights movement as well. Well, Sojourner ended up siding more with those who thought that the Black men should get the right to vote if it had to be a choice, and she didn't want it to be. But if that's the reality, the political reality of it, she would rather have some Blacks getting the vote than none at all, and then persist in working for the women's vote, both Blacks and whites. So it was a cruel choice to have to make, And she never changed her mind and she never gave up, but she had to acknowledge the political
0: realities that were forced on the movement. And so the movement was forced into a kind of gradualism, even though I'm hearing you saying that Sojourner Truth would have wanted it to maintain unity. And for all of these groups, African-American men and women of all races getting the vote all at once together. Am I hearing that correctly? Yes. As I
1: think Susan B. Anthony put it, Susan B. Anthony said she would prefer for us all to go into the kingdom together. And that's what Sojourner Truth wanted. But Anthony went on to say, but if that's not possible, white women should go first. And the reason they gave is that the white women had more education, at least those who were in the suffrage movement did, when the reality was that a lot of white women were not educated nor white men for that
0: matter. But these were the arguments at the time. And did Sojourner Truth live long enough to actually see the vote be accomplished so that women could vote and even African-American women? Or was that beyond the scope of her life? That was beyond the scope of her lifetime. She died decades before
1: women got the vote, but she did try to vote herself. She tried to vote for a U.S. grants reelection. And she was turned away from the polls in Michigan because she was a woman. We all know about Susan B. Anthony trying to vote and being denied, but she was not the only one. Sojourner Truth had that experience too. But Sojourner Truth found ways to be politically active. For example, she did campaign for Ulysses Grant to be reelected as president, and she also campaigned for Lincoln's reelection back in 64. So she was determined that even if she couldn't vote, she would find ways for her
0: voice to be heard. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Nancy Kester. We're talking about her recent book, We Will Be Free, The Life and Faith of Sojourner Truth. One of the things that really interested me in your book, We Will Be Free, is Sojourner Truth's commitment to women's suffrage wasn't simply political, it was also theological. She had a theology of how women fit into discourse and fit into public life, and I wonder if you could briefly help us to understand that.
1: Well, she thoroughly believed in the equality of women in every way, and she often had a humorous way of getting at that. She would take, for example, some of the stereotypes that men had about women, and then she would turn that all around, inside out and upside down, just to show how ridiculous it was. For example, she would say, well, men complain that women talk too much. Maybe women are really good at talking and speaking, so therefore they should be speaking in public. And what about men? If men are supposed to be behind the plow, then aren't they also going against God's will by standing up at the podium and speaking and so forth. So she would just turn the stereotypes around. And sometimes if if people would say things like, well, women shouldn't be in the courtroom, they shouldn't be lawyers, and they shouldn't even witness trials, because there's all kinds of bad stuff happening there. And it's not a fit place for ladies. And so truth would say, well, if it's not a fit place for ladies, then it's not a fit place for gentlemen either. So if nobody belongs there, then we all belong there. So she was always quick to point out those things. And she often did so in humorous ways. And I think once she got her audience to laugh, it was easier for them to let go of some of the old ways of thinking. Because once you can laugh at the way people do things now, then you're ready to explore something else. Another thing she did along these lines is that she would boast, and I do mean boast. She was very proud of her physical strength because she had many years as a farm laborer. And she would say, I can hoe and gather into barns and drive oxen as well as any man living, and I can eat as much as any man when I can get it. And this was not just a boast about her physical strength, but it was also her critique of what a lady was. In those days, it was thought that a lady was someone who had soft hands and who didn't have to work hard with her hands because her servants or slaves were doing that. So a real lady was delicate, and a real lady needed help to get over puddles and around the muddy roads and needed help getting into a carriage. And Sojourner was not having it. She said, no, that has nothing to do with being a lady. That she would often insist, I am a lady too, and nobody helps me. So she was not into the the whole business of being a lady, which also meant being wealthy and being white. But one of the interesting ways that she carried that out was she made a lot of sarcastic and funny comments at women's rights meetings after the Civil War about how the women were dressed. Because if you think of women's fashions in those days, how ridiculous they were with the corsets and bustles and crazy hats and silly shoes that meant you couldn't walk anywhere, you couldn't do anything when you were in this getup. And she confronted some of the women when she got up to speak and said, look at you, look at the way you're dressed with these silly feathers in your hats and you're dressed so you're helpless, you can't do anything and yet you expect people to take you seriously, really? And she knew she was needling them, but I think they had it coming. It's one of the fun things about Sojourner Truth is that she would sometimes let her friends know that she didn't approve of some of the things that they were doing. And it seems that they just
0: loved her anyway, because she was saying things that they didn't dare to say. I'm struck by this, because as you describe Sojourner Truth, she sounds fearless, and i think of an observation by theologian miguel de la torre and he basically he wrote a treatise on hopelessness and he says when the marginalized when the vulnerable have nothing left to lose they have nothing to hope for they have power and i wonder if i say that to you does that sound like a good description for where this fearlessness came from in sojourner truth or would you place that fearlessness with a different anchor than the one that someone like Miguel de la Torre might give us in hopelessness? Well, I think she's got a
1: couple different anchors here. I think her deepest anchor was always in the power of God, and that she believed she was a child of God just as much as anyone else. And I think that's where a lot of her courage came from. But she also had experienced a lot of losses in her lifetime. And as I said before, she was almost always poor. If she earned any money, she often gave it away to people who needed it more than she did. She lost her family because of slavery. And for many years, she felt that she had lost her calling because she was trying to earn enough to live on. And that kept her doing housekeeping. And here was this woman with all this talent doing manual labor for people. And I think she experienced despair because of all those losses. And yet she also experienced God walking with her through that and bringing her to another place. So I think that both the despair and the hope are sources of her bravery. And one thing about her view of work I think ties in here is that she did not despise manual labor. She took pride in it. And I think that was a very subversive thing to do, especially in a culture where if you are low class, you do manual labor. But she thought that was part of being a human being that God created and that the people who were so prissy or so conceited that they couldn't do manual
0: labor, those were the people to feel sorry for. I wonder, now looking back, having completed this project, you looked deeply at the life of Sojourner Truth and the circumstances around Sojourner Truth as a historian. And so the job of a historian is to get the facts correct and in the right place and to build a narrative around that. But there's also the sort of practical side of history, where we look at someone's life and we gather things that we can use and can help us to shape our life more towards good living and righteousness. So I wonder, if you're willing, what did you learn from reconstructing this life of Sojourner Truth that you're carrying forward in your own journey? Well, for one thing,
1: that her career or vocation is a better word, her vocation of being a minister was long postponed or deferred. And yet she didn't let that keep her from following her calling when she finally figured out how to make that work. And I find that very inspiring. I too had my calling deferred for quite a while because of family circumstances And I know many women pastors who've experienced that, but it's not only women. Men have experienced that kind of having to put things off for all kinds of reasons. But I think that her courage, especially the older she got, it seemed like the bolder she got and the more free she became to speak her mind, I find that really inspiring because it's really tempting to say, well, I'm getting too old for this now. I really shouldn't be doing this. Well, she wouldn't approach things at all that way. For her, if she was older, she was sassier, she was brassier, she was just going to go do it. And I also think that part of taking pride in the physical labor is an important thing. That That is such an essential part of being a human being that not to belittle that side of one's life, but to rejoice in that and to own it and say, look, I don't have to be something more than human. And I don't have to have other humans doing my dirty work for me. I can do it. And I can be proud of it. And I find that really empowering.
0: Well, Nancy Kester, I learned so much from your biography of Sojourner Truth, We Will Be Free. I especially loved the way in which Sojourner Truth was a character among characters. You really made the personages come alive in your retelling of this. It's masterful stuff that you're doing here. Thank you so much for taking the time to write the book, but thank you especially for taking the time to talk about it with me and my listeners. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Bless you. We've been speaking today with Nancy Kester. She holds a PhD in church history, and she is ordained in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Her scholarly work focuses on 19th century American history, especially the anti-slavery movement, the Civil War, and Reconstruction. She's the author of Harriet Beecher Stowe: A Spiritual Life, which won the Minnesota Book Award in 2015 in general nonfiction. Today, we've been talking about her recent book, We Will Be Free. The Life and faith of Sojourner Truth. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kijit. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio.